Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the executive director of Coastal States Organization, and I am really excited about today's podcast. We will be talking about the Ocean Climate Action Plan that was recently released from the Biden administration. It was released in March, so still pretty new, and it is going to be driving a lot of ocean climate policy across uh, a whole spectrum of federal agencies in this coming year. And I've got two excellent guests who both participated in developing the the plan and are going to be fairly influential in implementing the plan. Uh, Scott Doney with uh, OSTP and Libby Jewett with NOAA. Um, and so we will uh, we will hear from them. But before we do, let's take a quick word from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Okay, uh, Libby, Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. This is going to be a, an excellent conversation, timely and um as so many things are on the coast, really relevant and, and maybe even a little bit scary, but I think you've got a good plan to talk about. So, uh, Libby, why don't we let's let's start with you. Uh, most of our audience will be familiar with NOAA, um, but you are the director of ocean acidification. You're the director of the ocean acidification program. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means and what you do with NOAA, and then maybe even uh, share a little bit about how you got into the coastal field? How did you get into ocean acidification? Yeah, thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here and to be able to talk about the Ocean Climate Action Plan. So yes, as you said, I'm director of the Ocean Acidification Program at NOAA. Um, I've been doing that for the last 12 years. In fact, um, I had the opportunity to be the first director and founder of the program and have had the um, opportunity to build it up from the from the ground up. Um, so Long and short, just because I think it's always good to um, explain to people what exactly is ocean acidification. So um, it's caused by oceans and lakes taking up the excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and 
And when it when that happens, um, that additional CO2 causes the water to become more acidic um, through a series of chemical changes. And um, that the fact that the oceans and lakes take up CO2 from the atmosphere is actually providing a service to the planet. But um, because of the work that my program's been funding, we're learning that um, that service actually comes at a cost, which is changes to the chemistry of the ocean um, and potential and documented impacts on uh, marine life. So um, in my program, we fund the long-term monitoring that's um, happening around our coast, looking at acidification, um, and, and then also uh, research into the potential impacts, development of models so we can forecast out what we think is going to happen in the future, and, and also social sciences around um, the intersection of humans and marine resources and if, if and when and as these impacts are happening, how is that going to affect humans? So we really have the full spectrum of work happening in the program. Um, and as far as my um, involvement in the coastal environment, uh, I actually did my PhD uh, studying marine species in the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and I also grew up spending a lot of time uh, along the coast of Maine and sailing in the Chesapeake Bay. And I, I guess I could, I just have to say that how can you not love the ocean if you've had a chance to interact with it and all the cool marine life that's in it. And um, in fact, so much, there's so many different kinds of marine life that we're still identifying it. So that's what, that's what really drives me. And um, again, happy to be here. Excellent. Well, thank you. And and before we turn to Scott, I have a, a, a nomenclature question. Uh, ocean acidification really doesn't technically have anything to do with climate change, right? It's not. It's it's a it's a different impact from carbon pollution, but is often lumped under climate impacts. Are 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 we allowed to call ocean acidification a climate impact, even though it's technically doesn't relate? Yeah, I mean, I think you've you've. <laughs> You've kind of identified the conundrum there, right? Um, because both climate change and ocean acidification are are driven by increasing levels of carbon dioxide. Um, they are happening simultaneously, um, and I I actually find it sometimes easier just to say, well, it is you know it's related to climate change. It's a uh, it's definitely whatever whatever um, acidification impacts are happening are actually happening in the context of other changes that are happening that are climate related and like the warming of our coastal and oceans. Um, so I've gotten so that I'm, you know, talking about them both, but you're technically correct. CO2 causes climate change and CO2 causes OA. Um, and it's, and it's, you know, not the same thing. Well, thank you. Um, and I, I certainly appreciate that it's the Ocean Climate Action Plan and not the Ocean Climate and Ocean Acidification Action Plan because OCAP is much easier, easier to say than OCOWAP. Indeed. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, let's not go there. <laughs> okay, Scott, uh, I'll leave you sitting there. Um, speaking of acronyms, we have OSTP, the Office for Science and Technology Policy. Uh, probably not quite as familiar to our coastal audience as NOAA. Can you quickly sort of tell us what OSTP is and then what your role is as the Ocean Climate Science and Policy Assistant Director? Sure. Uh, thanks, Derek. So the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy 
it, it really does what it sounds. We work on how science, technology, innovation can advance prosperity for the American people. And our job is to provide advice to the president and to other parts of the White House to work with federal agencies on the, the large and extensive and diverse research investments that are done by the federal government to connect with states and tribes and communities on science questions and to really try to make sure that science is being, the benefits from science are being accrued, accrued justly and equitably across the country. So we've invested a lot in trying to figure out what are the barriers for science knowledge for disadvantaged communities. As you said, my role is Assistant Director for Ocean Climate Science and Policy. And again, it's kind of what it sounds like. My background's in oceanography, and we're trying to figure out what are the what's new research and technology that could be applied to the climate problem uh, focused on the ocean? And then how does that connect into management of ocean resources and marine resources? What kind of information is needed to deal with the climate crisis that we're already facing today? Um, excellent. Well, the specific reason we're, we're having you guys both on today is to talk about the Ocean Climate Action Plan. Um, and so, Scott, maybe I'll, I'll start with you this time. Can you give us sort of a, a high-level summary of what it is and then uh, talk a bit about what your your role was in the development of it? And then we'll get into a bit more on the, the specifics. But sort of what's your, what's your elevator uh, talking points for what the Ocean Climate Action Plan is? So when we think about climate change in the ocean, most people think about all the all the bad stuff that's happening, you know, coral bleaching and fish stocks moving because of ocean warming. You know, right now, sea surface temperatures are higher than they've ever been for this time of year. So everybody's thinking about the negative impacts of the climate crisis on the ocean. What we wanted to do was highlight that there are also lots of things that we can do. The ocean can be involved in solutions that can protect the marine environment, um, help communities that are already facing difficulties because of the climate crisis, and also contribute on a larger scale to removing carbon dioxide emissions or reducing carbon dioxide emissions to the atmosphere. And so the Ocean Climate Action Plan was a whole of government approach to trying to pull together what's currently being done, what are some best practices that we want to accelerate, and what's research that needs to be done so that new actions might be able to unfold over the coming decades. Um, real quickly, my role, um, so I was brought into OSTP to be the OSTP co-lead for this. Uh, this was put together by OSTP, other parts of the White House, and you know a dozen or more uh, agencies across the federal government. So um, I basically was a lot of traffic cop of bringing people's ideas together and tried to meld them into a coherent narrative. Um, excellent. So you were the uh, the federal agency cat herder. Um, and I yes. imagine one of the catfish herder. Catfish herder. I like that. Um, uh, so Libby, as one of the, the primary catfish in this uh, in this ocean, Talk to me about maybe a little bit of broadly about NOAA's role, which I imagine was extensive in, in developing OCAP, and then maybe more specifically about what it was that you did. Yeah, so I, given 
that I'm uh, director of a research division focused on um, an aspect of that intersection between climate and the ocean. Um, I was identified as someone who who they wanted to put forward to be one of the co-leads of this work at exactly for the reason that you just mentioned, which is that NOAA um, has a very large role um, in this intersecting space. And in fact, of the many actions that are in the plan, um, NOAA is either a lead or a co-lead on many, if not almost all of them, uh, about 135 actions, I think. So um, we took this very seriously. And again, because we're a large organization that um, has many divisions and programs that are focused on specific aspects of what we wanted to cover in the OCAP, um, I made it a priority to listen to what other agencies were suggesting that they wanted to include in the plan. And then I would bring that back um, to a team at NOAA from across um, the many divisions of NOAA um, to discuss, uh, you know, were we ready and willing to put uh, NOAA forward to also work on those particular actions. And um, we were uh, supportive of the work. We also didn't want to, uh, we didn't, we didn't want it to be completely unrealistic, um, but not also not completely lightweight. So I think in the end, we hit a really good middle ground uh, with Scott's help and um, guidance. Uh, we hit good middle ground of, of both bold but not unrealistic um, actions that we could put forward and, and actually make some headway on as an interagency. Excellent. So the Ocean Climate Action Plan is a um, whole of government approach to looking at how the ocean, looking at the ocean's role, both in uh, uh, sort of ad adapting and helping communities and ecosystems adapt to climate change, as well as the role the ocean plays in reducing um, the, the causes of climate change and uh, looks at bold but hopefully achievable actions. Is that sort of a, a fair statement? Anything I, I left out for that high level pitch? I, and I, I think I would add that we want to do it in a way that's equitable and just. We, we really don't want to roll out ocean-based actions that are going to harm some communities. And so a lot of thought went into how do we do this in a way that takes in different people and different communities uh, perspectives. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the really important aspects of this plan is that it was pretty strongly focused on the mitigation side. Um, the feeling, at least from the NOAA, the NOAA group that was working on this, is that, and, and I agree, and I believe um, on the part of others who represented their own agencies, was that there's a lot of adaptation work that was already happening, um, specifically in response to sea level rise, for instance, task forces and plans. And, and yet there wasn't as much um, thought or activity or actions uh, related to harnessing the ocean for the mitigation aspects. And really to change the trajectory that we're on in terms of climate change, we, we do have to focus on the mitigation side. So that's what really energized me 
Um, but we did clear, you know, there is adaptation in the plan, but my feeling is that the, the in fact, the most important parts of it are the on the mitigation side. Thanks. And you guys both mentioned that this is a sort of whole of government brought together different agencies, um, OSTP and, and NOAA being sort of the, some of the most core partners. But if you go to just page, I think it's three or four in the plan, you see a huge list of various um, people and agencies who've been involved. So this brings together Department of Interior, Department of Energy, the Navy, NASA, Army Corps, um, NS in the National Science Foundation, so many more. It seems like there really were a, a huge range of participants in developing the plan, as there will need to be a huge range of agencies and participants implementing the plan. And, and, and Derek, if I could just add, yeah. from the level of the White House, this was jointly put together by OSTP and the Council for Environmental Quality. So we're, we're joint partners in this, in this effort. So uh, Libby, you just mentioned sort of the, the, the focus on mitigation, not to say adaptation isn't included in there. Um, a couple of the things I wanted to, to talk about, and we discussed a little bit ahead of time about talking about it or some of the specific actions. Obviously, you, there's 135 actions in here and it's, you know, a hundred page document that's really, I don't want to say dense in that it's hard to understand, but it's dense in that there's just a lot of, um, uh, of, of information and action. But uh, one but I guess, so maybe, why don't I kick off with, what do you see as sort of um, the easiest lifts? Like, what are the things in here that are just like, you know, kind of no-brainers we can be doing, and, and maybe we can just start moving forward on then? And then you, you talked about the bold actions. What do you see as, as the bold, the most, the boldest, maybe more challenging thing? So Libby, I'll start with you, and then we'll get Scott's perspective on that too. It's all it's all pretty bold, um, but yes, I, I what I would like to talk about are a couple of um, aspects of the plan that I've personally been helping to shepherd and lead that um, that are beginning to move the needle, and so that's really exciting to see. And I think the OCAP is is great, and that it will keep the pressure on those activities to continue. So one of the um, areas, and I wouldn't say it was an easy lift because, you know, it's going to continue, you know, to, to be something that we have to work on and yet we're going to have to figure out how to make it continue to make it happen. But I've been leading a, an inter interagency effort on marine carbon dioxide removal, which is one of the major, you know, theme areas of the plan. Um, and we were able um, with the NOAA leadership through the National Oceanographic Partnership Program to bring together funding from across four different agencies. So NOAA, Navy, National Science Foundation, and Department of Energy um, to fund uh, research uh, around marine carbon dioxide removal. And then- Libby, can I, can yeah. I just interrupt? Can, marine carbon dioxide removal was actually something that was a little bit new to me. Could you maybe- Talk, tell us a little bit about what that is as you talk about why it was included and, and what you were working on. Yeah, I'm wondering, Scott, do you want to answer that since you were the chair of the National Academy study? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, and this goes back to what Libby said at the beginning, is that you know human emissions of carbon dioxide are a major driver of climate change. And right now, you know, globally, we emit about 36 billion tons of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere each year. We need to rapidly decarbonize our energy system and transportation 
but some things are just going to be hard to decarbonize. And so there's going to be this residual human emissions that we have to balance out to get to net zero. That's, you know, all the climate discussions now are net zero CO2 emissions. And so carbon dioxide removal are nature-based and technology-based approaches that would actively remove extra carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So in the marine space, the area that, that, that Libby's program is working on, that can be everything from, you know, growing kelp and aquaculture and then sinking that to the deep sea or grinding up rock that's alkaline and spreading it in the ocean or dissolving it up so that that can remove more carbon dioxide. There's a whole roast, host of different technologies, but these are things that would need to be on the sort of, you know, tens to hundreds of millions of tons of CO2 per year to contribute to this goal to reach a net zero world. Uh, in the report, we call it, you know, uh, creating a carbon neutral future. Interesting. So it's, it's a way of taking carbon out of the atmosphere using ocean or ocean-based plants, geology formations, but that is not going to contribute to ocean acidification. Well, we hope not. <laughs> and that's why we need to do the research around it. You know, there is a potential there, for instance, in the uh, adding alkalinity, as Scott said, for um, ocean acidification processes to actually be reversed, but that may not last for too long because it then, re, you know, the it re-equilibrates with the atmosphere. So CO2 keeps coming in, which is obviously the intent. Um, but we have to do research around it. Otherwise, we can't we can't provide guidance, um, you know, as we're being asked to provide to, let's say, private industry who wants to spin something up and um, use it to um, to create carbon credits that that other companies can buy. And we want to make sure that carbon is is actually sequestered and real carbon credits, you know, versus just activity that's happening in the ocean that may be causing harm. So do you want me to keep going or do you have? Yeah, please keep going. You, we sort of cut you off. You were talking about the multi-agency funding effort on, on carbon dioxide removal. If you wanted to sort of build back into that. Right. So um, we uh, were able to kind of pull together um, multiple funding streams and um, are going to be uh, announcing come September um, a, a series of projects um, that will be happening in universities and government labs and um, with private industry um, participation. And we're really excited about that. We hope it kind of pushes things forward. I will say that right now, at least NOAA has uh, no legislative authority around marine carbon dioxide removal, although um, in the OA ocean acidification legislation that we have, it does talk about researching mitigation, you know, potential technologies. And so we kind of, we, we've grandfathered it into that, but I think, you know, time will tell if we get further um, authorities from Congress. Um, so, and then I just want to talk about two other things. One is um, on the ocean acidification front, there's actually, there are actions related to ocean acidification. You know, we have a program that I've been leading. We, we, um, I'm chair of the o ocean acidification interagency working group, and we've also collectively um, been working hard for many years on, um, you know, long-term monitoring and research and 
um, you know, understanding what coastal communities need. Um, some of the actions that we included in there um, include the need to work more closely with coastal communities, um, you know, in terms of uh, training them on doing OA monitoring. And I think we're getting better at that. And, and we will definitely be pushing that, you know, collectively to make sure that we can, you know, do that work well. And then the last thing I'll say, one of the hard, heavy lifts, I think, um, only, maybe only because I don't completely, um, I don't work in this field, is the idea of development of green shipping. You know, shipping is a huge emitter of carbon dioxide and, and definitely an area um, that we collectively, the federal government, to the extent that it can, um, needs to be pushing, but it seems to me it's going to be hard to do, um, but important. So I'll leave it there. Thanks. Scott, anything you'd like to, to add in of, of things that you thought were particularly interesting? Yeah. So, so the, the green shipping and the marine carbon dioxide removal fit within, you know, part of this re reducing emissions are actually actively taking up carbon. Uh, the report also talks a lot about offshore wind energy, which there were big commitments from the administration before we started developing the action plan. So, you know, we're just reinforcing uh, things that are already on the books in terms of expanding offshore wind and and looking into other uh, marine energy technologies. Um, but other parts of the plan that connect both to reducing emissions, but also into adaptation are more nature-based solutions. So protecting and restoring coastal uh, carbon-rich habitats, things like wetlands and seagrasses and and mangrove, uh, mangrove forests, um, also marine protected areas uh, that can be of great benefit under climate change, uh, as well as how do we ensure that we have uh, sustainable fisheries in the future under climate change, and then also some of the coastal climate and community activities. So I, I do think this goes back to the, you know, there's a lot of particularly in the front part of the report on mitigation. But some of these things like blue carbon, these blue carbon habitats like wetlands and, and, and mangroves, they both store carbon, but they also provide a wealth of other benefits, things like biodiversity and fishery uh, habitats, uh, recreational habitats, coastal protection. And so we really tried to look across the spectrum from you know, sort of very technological approaches like offshore wind to restoration and preservation of the marine environment. Thanks. Very helpful. So this seems like some of the actions in here are new or, or, or sort of were pulled together for this plan, and some were summarizing or recapping uh, actions that had already been announced by the administration, the, the 30 by 30, 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, things like that. Um, who, I guess, who, who is this report primarily or this plan primarily written for? It, it strikes me that this is a lot of the actions in here are things that federal agencies should be taking. So obviously, you know, they're an audience. Was this written really for the agencies or is there sort of a broader societal audience? Who else needs to be sort of reading this and implementing the plan? Well, I, I, I can start and then maybe Libby can put in her opinion as well. 
I mean, at the end of the day, we're trying to do this for the American people. And yes, you know, we want to be able to coordinate and and energize the federal investments and activities. Um, you know, one of my roles uh, within OSTP is to find places where agencies are doing good work, but maybe they're, they could benefit by working together. But that working together is not just within the federal government. That's with states, with municipalities, with tribal nations, uh, with indigenous, uh, with indigenous groups, uh, with people in the territories. Um, so I really see this as a, not just a whole of government, but really a whole of nation approach. And we're hoping as we roll out the implementation of OCAP that we will continue this engagement process and really find uh, those opportunities where federal activity is really synergistic with activities that are already going on in industry and in communities and at other levels of government. I like that whole of nation approach. So, you know, the plan can actually direct the feds to do stuff, but hopefully inspire states, industry. Um, there's a fair amount of in here about connecting with public engagement, working with tribes, um, where they're coastal tribes, you know, having working and engaging with them. Uh, really like that. Uh, so sort of moving forward into the implementation stages of this, or maybe bridging uh, into implementation, um, one thing we've talked about on this podcast, and I think most coastal practitioners are aware of just what an incredible time we are in right now with the opportunities presented through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, right? We have been pushing for increased funding for coastal resilience and climate action for years, some of us decades. And now we have this incredible opportunity really in the next couple of years to, to take a first big, big step into a new climate future. Um, can you talk about how this plan maybe dovetails or, or coordinates or works with uh, the implementation of, of some of that federal funding uh, coming through those two landmark legislation? Well, I can uh, chime in there which is uh, going back to our uh, marine carbon dioxide removal topic. Uh, we, in that funding opportunity that I was just speaking about, that includes a number of agencies, we actually were able to identify IRA funding, um, the Inflation Reduction Act funding that's coming to NOAA, that um, dovetailed well with the priorities of the, the, the research that we were proposing to fund. And so already, you know, we're seeing um, the IRA funding actually enabled a, a doubling of the amount of resources that we had initially um, to actually go towards this important topic. Um, in the climate accelerator um, rubric, I guess, and the, the idea there is that we work we will be working with private industry, which we are um, in these projects. So I would say it it actually worked, um, is working already in that way. And that's just a very specific example of um, where we where we've seen the OCAP um, intersect with those important sources of funding that have are coming into the agencies. Scott, in your role sort of bringing together agencies to, to develop and implement OCAP, are you seeing any parallels into how agencies might be coordinating um, with some of those other pots of funding or, or any thoughts on this topic? 
Yeah, I, I would say that the same experiences that Libby is talking about from NOAA, you know, we're seeing with EPA, with Army Corps of Engineers, with folks at the Department of Interior. Um, there's a lot of activities that are going to be supported by the infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act that are going to fit very well into uh, the Ocean Climate Action Plan. And, and actually, a lot of how we put together the Ocean Climate Action Plan was trying to understand what agencies wanted to do with that funding and what were their plans. And, and so I see a lot of opportunity moving forward, um, not just with NOAA, but across the spectrum of, of ocean-related federal agencies. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to take it one step higher, and this is where my, uh, my knowledge really starts to become pretty thin, and that's looking internationally. Um, we could probably spend a, a whole podcast or more on international policy and politics driving ocean climate issues. Um, but uh, I was wondering if one of you, maybe Scott, if you could talk a little bit how the OCAP fits within the administration's broader international climate and or international oceans uh, strategy or, or policies. Well, one of the things that the administration did fall of 2021 was join the, uh, a multinational group called the High Level Panel for a Sustainable Ocean Economy. So this is 17 nations around the world, um, all of which are, are marine and ocean-facing nations that are really trying to look at how ocean preservation can contribute to prosperity um, and a just and equitable world. And so we have been trying to take the lessons that we learned from developing an ocean climate action plan and have discussions internationally with, you know, could these, you know, the things that we learned as we were developing this plan, whether it's on, for example, opportunities for offshore wind or green shipping, uh, both of which uh, have vast international opportunities, as well as marine carbon dioxide removal, blue carbon, uh, and see how that connects to international efforts. So I think that's one mechanism. Obviously, you know, the ocean is involved in all of our, our international climate discussions, but sometimes doesn't get maybe the, the high level, um, uh, the high level view that it maybe deserves. And so, you know, we're hoping that by developing this plan, we'll remind people the important role that the ocean plays in our climate system and the many opportunities that ocean-based actions can play to making the world a better place. Libby, thoughts on, on how the, the ocean acidification components of this uh, plan play into the international efforts to address ocean acidification? Um, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So, uh, well, I would say as director of the OA program, um, we really have become the, the international leaders in um, ocean acidification research, uh, primarily because we have ongoing you know, congressional appropriations, um, unlike any other country. However, I'll also say that, um, that you know, we want to work with other countries and um, provide an example. And in um, last year, in 2022, at the UN Oceans Conference, 
um, the U.S. government joined the ocean acidification, the Alliance to Combat Ocean Acidification, which is an international political alliance that includes uh, a number of both countries and subnational um, organizations. And it was thrilling to me that the the U.S. government um, decided to join that. Um, as a result, uh, we're now uh, ob- not necessarily obligated, but um, will write uh, an ocean acidification action plan. And we made a point of including language uh, about this in the ocean climate action plan to keep ourselves accountable um, that this was uh, a very important part of our uh, sort of general international leadership on uh, ocean acidification. So yes, we are involved. Um, I'll, I'll say one other thing too, is that there's a really important uh, decade-long effort underway now called the Decade for Ocean Science that's led by the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, IOC. And that effort is also um, a, a sort of a forum for countries to interact and and move forward in their planning to work together on ocean topics. And um, I'm sure that, in fact, I know that many of the priorities in the Ocean Climate Action Plan um, will and are and will show up uh, through that decadal um, uh, process. Cool. Thanks for thanks for sharing. And and Derek, I just wanted to throw in one other example from uh, uh, the State Department, who's obviously not on this on this podcast, but you know. They do a lot of the a lot of our international connections, obviously, and so they've been very active in developing green shipping corridors. You know, Libby had brought up earlier this idea of reducing emissions from international maritime shipping, and this is one of the classic international problems, right? We import a lot of goods; the ships come into our ports. You know, we could fill them up with alternative fuels, but they need partner ports in other nations. And so they're trying to develop what is called green shipping corridors along common trade routes. And that that would allow shipping, this cooperation between nations would allow industry to start deploying and testing cleaner ships, cleaner port activities. But you really need to do that. You need both ends of the of the, the, the shipping corridor to be working. So that's, I think, a great example of where international activity can push forward these ocean-based climate actions. Yeah, that's that's a nice example of, of a way that, you know, the State Department, not really something you, uh, an agency. And, and I should say the Department of Transportation, obviously, as well. They're very heavily involved in that. Sure, but bringing those two together, but I, I don't think either you'd sort of immediately think of as sort of ocean climate uh, agencies, but obviously both play play a role. Um, and, and thank you for explaining what the the shipping corridors where I sort of had pictured, you know, HOV lanes in the ocean for <laughs> low emission. Boats. And 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 there's even one that's being developed between the U.S. and Canada because there's a huge amount of trade on the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence Seaway. Okay, so my my next question is going to be sort of a short one to each of you, but what? Um, uh, maybe Libby, I'll turn to you first. Can you share one? Uh, one challenge, one big challenge with implementing the Ocean Climate Action Plan that you see, and then maybe follow that up with uh, one thing that makes you hopeful 
that this plan can be implemented or or can significantly be implemented to help address the climate crisis that we're in? So I would say one of the strengths, but really a huge challenge is um, actually having agencies actually work together. Um, One thing um, that I've realized over my time in, in doing interagency work, and it's very important that we, that agencies work together, but just, just even though it makes so much sense, it's so much easier said than done (laughs) because you realize that every agency has, and every program in every agency has a different mission. And the trick is to figure out how to get those missions working together in a common way. And even once you figure that out, then figuring out how to execute together is it's so hard. Um, however, I think we have to do it together. And so I am, it's both the, the easiest, you know, easiest thing to say, but the hardest thing to do. But I also think we have to do it. Um, otherwise, we're not gonna, it's not gonna, the, the sort of execution of the OCAP won't be as strong if we don't do it together. And so that's certainly a challenge. Can you maybe share a hope or maybe something that you've seen that makes you hopeful? Oh, well, we got, yes. (laughs) Sorry, I forgot about that part. Um, I am going to go back again to this uh, recent interagency effort that I have been spearheading on marine carbon dioxide removal. We did it. You know, we we were able to figure out exactly um, how to, you know, to work together across as agencies. and, And the the funding opportunity was stronger because of that. And now we have these relationships that we didn't have before, which is going to enable future work together. So it's possible. And I'm hopeful as a result. Excellent. The challenge of coordination, um, but the hope of seeing some of that coordination bear fruit. Excellent. Thank you, Scott. How about you? A challenge and a hope. So the my challenge is that the pace of action and the pace of research to develop new action isn't going to be fast enough to keep up with how quickly climate change is already affecting the ocean and climate change is affecting the globe. Um, you know, we're just, we're seeing this constantly. We're moving into uh, an El Nino year, it looks like, based on the NOAA forecasts. So we're going to expect to see ch- extreme weather events, um, ocean warming and heat waves, coral bleaching, uh, potentially a, a devastating year in terms of mar- our marine environment. And so I just worry that, you know, the speed at which we can actually figure out what are the right actions, are they safe, you know, are they just, um, that concerns me. My, my hope, which gets me going every morning, is that the Biden-Harris administration is really committed at a, at a deep and fundamental level to addressing climate change, addressing ocean preservation, and addressing environmental justice and, and dealing with past inequities. And so that, that's what keeps me going every day. Thank you. That's a good, a, a good hope after a, a real challenge. And I think um, I would add my hope is, is I think it, the equity and justice piece of this, I think this is one that's very, you know, you think of the ocean and it, it seems a bit far from you know, low-income communities or underserved populations, but really the the fundamental environmental justice component of this, as well as so many other things uh, that so many of the agencies are doing now. There's a great EPA program that's looking at 
our ports and pollution generated by all the activities in our ports, much of what falls on disadvantaged communities that surround the port. I mean, there there are things, you know, the ocean is not an abstract, distant thing. It's not something that's, you know, way far out or in the beautiful, you know, the beautiful tropics. We're really talking about where a lot of our, or a lot of the people in our country live and work uh, and are trying to raise their kids. Well, thank you both. This has been super informative, and I would certainly encourage all our listeners to go in and look at the Ocean Climate Action Plan. It's a 105 pages of uh, just amazing recommendations of how um, how our ocean and coastal uh, areas can both adapt to and help mitigate climate change, as well as uh, ocean acidification. Although it sounds like we're allowed to say both of those together. Um, but, uh, you know, I know, I know the work you guys do is just, it's so tough and it's, there's, it's, it, there's such a, a labor involved and often we get very disconnected from the resource as we do this work. So I always like to ask my guests, um, before we finish up, what is a, a, what's your favorite beach or coastal area? Where do you go to get recharged? Um, Libby, I'll start with you. You mentioned at the top, you're, you got a background in the Chesapeake. Is it somewhere in the Chesapeake or is it somewhere else that really re-energizes you? I would have to say that, uh, my absolute favorite area um, in the whole country is the rocky coast of Maine. Um, Always has been and continues to be. And interesting in light of the Ocean Climate Action Plan is uh, unfortunately the Gulf of Maine waters are warming faster than just about all other regions of the world. So doubly important from my personal perspective that we work hard on this, as Scott said, um, so that uh, the the changes that are unfolding there can start to slow down. Um, so, yeah, but it's a beautiful place. And I encourage anyone who has never been up in the sort of Acadia region of uh, the, the coast of Maine that you, that you go there right away. Excellent. Thank you, Libby. How about you, Scott? Yeah. So I've, through my career, I've spent about two decades of my life, um, living on Cape Cod and we still go there as a family to sort of recharge. So I, I'd, I'd have to say it's the, the Cape Cod region. It's, you know, it just the different times of year, you know, between, you know, lots of, obviously lots of tourists in the summer um, and then beautiful shoulder seasons. And then, you know, even winter when, you know, you just don't, you don't think of going to the beach in the winter, but I, I love to go to the beach in the winter. Um, just. It's just a beautiful place. Excellent. Well, again, thank you both for joining me. Thank you for the work you do. And thank you for the work that you will be doing in implementing this plan. Really great to hear from you guys today.